the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hello, this is Attorney Bob Bergman, your host of Plan Your State Radio. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I would like to, to talk about a few things today, uh, mainly about things that I do in my practice. I know there's a lot of information out there about living trusts. So I'm going to talk today about living trusts. What are they? How are they put together? What can you do with them? And hopefully dispel a lot of of incorrect and sometimes faulty and sometimes dangerous information that floats around out there in the world about living trusts. Now, a living trust, or uh, more properly, revocable living trust, uh, revocable living trust consists of three pieces. Revocable means that you can change your mind. Now, a little bit of history here. When you're talking about trusts, trusts themselves have been around for many, many centuries. Uh, you can find trusts or things like trusts throughout the world going back hundreds and hundreds of years. In England, which is basically where we get our concept of trusts from, being uh, the United States being originally under English common law, the idea of a trust is that it's something that is created and it's irrevocable and unchangeable once it's put into effect. Well, the United States came up with the concept of the revocable trust, meaning one that you could change or amend or modify or terminate or cancel at will. Uh, revocable means just that. So we're unique in the world having this type of way to own property, which is the revocable living trust. The living part, which can be rendered uh, sometimes as inter vivos, which is Latin for between the living, the living part of revocable living trust means that it's a trust that is created while you are alive rather than the trust that's created after you have died. We typically call a trust created either by somebody's will or after they've died as a testamentary trust, kind of like last will and testament, if you've ever heard that term before. So a testamentary trust is created after you've died, and a living trust is created while you're alive and property is transferred into the ownership of that trust during your lifetime. Now, trust is a little bit more interesting. Trust basically means property that is being held by one person or entity, like a trust company, for example, for the use and benefit of another person or persons. Um, those people are called the beneficiaries of the trust. 
So trust, I like to envision a trust as being kind of like a wooden toy box for your toys. Now, your toys are the things that you own. I mean, you know, the only real difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. I've heard that all my life, and I I can testify as a, an older man now. It's absolutely true. But a trust being like a toy box means that this this box called the trust is designed to hold the things that you've you own and what you've acquired during your lifetime. So let me give you an example. The kinds of things that can be owned by someone's living trust include real estate, stocks and bonds and mutual funds in a brokerage account as long as it's not a retirement plan. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then things like cash accounts in the bank, jewelry, automobiles, precious metals, works of art, anything that you could pick up and carry around, or more intangible things that you can't really touch, such as um, bank accounts and stocks and bonds and mutual funds and a brokerage account. So those kinds of things are the toys that would go into a revocable living trust once it's created. The people who create the toy box, we call the trustors, or the settlers, or the trust makers, or the grantors, all of those terms in reference to a trust mean essentially the same thing. So if you have a trust right now and you're looking at the paperwork someday and you see you're called the trustor, well, someone else may say, well, wait, that's not right. My trust says I'm the settlor. This person says, well, my trust says I'm the grantor. Just so you know, they all mean the same thing in reference to a trust. So the trustor or settlor is whoever creates the trust, hopefully with the help of an experienced estate planning attorney and not trying to do it on their own, which is something I pretty much recommend against because it's a lot more complicated than you may think. So the trustor creates the trust, then creates an instruction manual for the trust, which we call the trust agreement, and then signs that trust agreement as the trustor and also as another job called the trustee. Now, a lot of people, they hear that and they go, so what you're telling me is if I set up a living trust, I'm going to have an agreement or a contract, if you will, that I'm going to sign with myself in reference to this trust. And I go, that's exactly right. I said, well, Bob, doesn't that sound kind of strange? I mean, I'm going to enter into a contract with myself. What? I don't trust myself. I, I, you know, why would I do that? That sounds really, really strange. I explained it in this way, which I think makes a lot of sense. In our lives, we all fill different roles in our lives. For example, in my life, when I was younger, I was a son to my parents. Then as I got older, I became a lawyer, which meant that I was a lawyer to my clients. I got married, and that made me a husband to my wife. And then later on, we started a family, and I have two lovely daughters. They're twins, um, and they're, um, they're younger than you think. I'm older than people think, and my daughters are younger than they expect. Most people think I'm their grandfather, but that's okay. I don't care. They're still my kids, and I love them to death. But that makes me a father to my children. So at any given time, I have a hat that I'm wearing depending on what role I'm playing at that time. 
So if I'm in my office meeting with clients or prospective clients, I'm wearing my attorney hat. Sometimes I switch and put on my counselor hat because people need counseling. Maybe sometimes they need encouragement. Sometimes they need specific advice or opinions about how to deal with something in in their personal lives and their situation from an estate planning standpoint. So I'm a counselor. Sometimes I'm a teacher. Like on this show, sometimes I'm teaching, sometimes I'm counseling, sometimes I'm just pontificating, as we all do at various times. But I find that in life, most problems arise when people are wearing the wrong hat in a conversation. Stop and ponder that for a moment. If I'm talking to my wife and I've put on a father hat talking to my wife, that's not going to end well, is it? Because I'm basically talking down to her. Same thing would happen if she puts on a mommy hat and talks to me about something. Because she's not my mother, she's my wife. And and when I talk to my kids, I put on my daddy hat. And sometimes, in very limited circumstances, I put on a friend hat and talk with them as a friend, even though I'm their father. That's not the norm, and it's only for a very brief time. And I wear a friend hat with a friend. If I put on a parent hat with a friend, we're probably going to end up in an argument. So it works the same way here. If you're the trustor who created the trust, that's one hat that you're wearing. So you can enter into an agreement with yourself as the trustee because that's a different hat, a different role. And uh, and the, the trustee of a trust is kind of like the CEO or president of the trust. That's the person or persons put in charge of the property in that trust, and they're given instructions in this instruction manual called the trust agreement on how to use the property to take care of the beneficiaries of the trust, the people who receive the benefit. So that's the third role that people have when there's a trust, trustor, trustee, and beneficiary. So after the break, when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about living trusts and the kind of planning we can do with them. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Before the break, I was talking about how we transfer property into trust ownership. And let me explain how that really works. A trust by itself, that wooden toy box, doesn't really exist as a legal entity. It's more a a legal concept of how property can actually be owned by someone. When you set up a living trust, that toy box, in order to get the full use of that toy box and all the benefits that can flow from that, you want to make sure that you transfer ownership or what we call retitle various assets into the ownership of that toy box. The ownership has to be through the trustee. The, The trust itself can't directly own property without a trustee that's handling it for them. So, uh, for example, if you have a house, you transfer the ownership of the house to your name as trustee of your trust, established whatever date it happened to be established, and that acts to change the ownership or the title into the trust ownership. There's a problem, though. There's, There's some categories of property that we can own or toys that we have that cannot successfully be transferred into the ownership of a revocable living trust. 
the most prominent category are any retirement plans. These are your IRAs, KEOs, 401ks, 403bs, uh, deferred comp plans, all these kinds of things that are what are we call what we call qualified retirement plans that are actually if you look at the paperwork and people are surprised when I say pull out that paperwork from Schwab or wherever your IRA was set up. You know the paperwork you didn't bother reading before you signed up? Well, go back and read that paperwork, uh, and you're going to find out that there's actually a trust company, there's actually a trust store and a trustee, and your retirement monies are in a trust with you as the beneficiary. Now, what this means legally is you don't actually own your retirement monies until you take them out of the retirement plan. Now, people are surprised to hear that. Say, what are you saying? You know, I have a half million in my 401k at work. And I say, okay, you are the beneficiary of a half million dollar 401k trust. And uh, and by the way, that was actually set up because the, uh, the federal law allows you to set up that 401k plan. <clears throat> and at least uh, legally, if not practically, the government tomorrow could say, you know what, we're going to take everybody's 401k plans and put them into the U.S. Treasury, and we're going to give you back government bonds in return, and we'll pay you with government bonds. They could actually do that because 401k plans are a creature of Congress. They didn't exist before Congress said they existed, and what Congress can give, Congress can take away. You see that with the tax laws changing. You see that with special deals for various uh, industries, special you know tax credits, all those kinds of things. Um, we all remember, I think, that when we could deduct the interest on our credit cards that were our personal credit cards, that went away a long time ago. Most recent tax bill uh, for here in 2018 uh, actually changes a lot of things about deductibility and also changes tax brackets and everything else. So don't be surprised when you hear that your 401k plan could actually be taken by the government if they decide to do that someday. Don't want to panic anybody, but that's just the reality of how they work. So you don't transfer retirement plans into the ownership of a revocable living trust. And there's a very simple reason why. If you were to do that, that triggers a 100% distribution of that retirement plan to you the year you did that transfer. Now, ponder that for a moment. If you're not yet 59 and a half years of age, which is the age where you can start taking money out of a retirement plan without a tax penalty, if, say, you're 50 and you do that, you'll owe income tax on the full amount of your plan, and you'll owe a 10% federal income tax penalty on the amount withdrawn for early withdrawal. You're probably familiar with early withdrawal penalties. If you close out a CD at a bank before its due date, they'll charge you some interest for that. You won't get all the interest. Well, the federal government says if you're going to take the money out before we say you're allowed to, we're going to charge you a penalty on top of the income tax you owe for taking it out. So don't do that. Um, In the early days of living trusts, before they were really, really understood well, including by attorneys, um, people would be advised, yeah, you set up this trust and then you put everything you own into the trust ownership 
And you get all these benefits that flow from doing that. So people did that and then found out much of their dismay that they'd actually taken distributions from their retirement plans that they owed tax on and maybe a penalty as well. So don't do that. There's another category of property that people can own, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, that may not be eligible to be transferred into the ownership of a living trust that you've set up. Uh, That category is incentive stock options and maybe restricted stock units as well, which is kind of the the more modern version of stock options, which used to be given out uh, very freely by companies in the past until the government said you have to start expensing those as as liabilities on your corporate books and records. And then they said, well, we don't want that. We want our corporate books to look very, very robust. We don't want to have tens of millions of dollars of stock options showing up as a liability. So they stopped giving out stock options. But the thing is, most grants of stock options prohibit any kind of transfer or assignment or hypothecation, which means borrowing against the stock options that you have. In fact, early grants would say if you did any of those things, the penalty is you don't have the options anymore. In other words, we gave them to you, but you didn't play by the rules, so we're going to take them away from you. Now, what that means is that if you have stock options, uh, there needs to be a way to kind of have a workaround on how you can have them maybe not owned by your trust, but at least controlled by your trust if someone needed to exercise them because you became um, disabled, incapacitated, uh, or to exercise them after, uh, after you've passed away. So those are a serious issue. Restricted stock units may have the same limitations on them. The only way you can really tell is by reading the actual grant document that was given to you by your company. And then again, that's probably something you haven't bothered to read. But you have to read that and see what it says about being able to assign or transfer or borrow against those things. More recent options, they change the language, quite frankly, because... It's likely that the people higher up in the companies found out from their lawyers, well, we can't put your 50,000 shares or your 2 million shares of stock options into your trust because the grant doesn't permit that. So they went back and they said, let's redo everybody's grants so they can do that. Uh, And then we can put our options into our trust and into our estate plan. And by the way, as a side benefit, all of our Employees who are lower down in the food chain of the company can do that as well. So before doing that, you always want to have that looked at by uh, whoever you are working with that's helping you with your planning. So after the break, I'm going to go more into living trust planning and also the kinds of things we can do with that planning. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. What are some of the things that could be done with living trusts? Let me start first by saying that if you have a revocable living trust and you also add in two or three other legal documents like a financial power of attorney, an advanced health care directive for your medical and health care needs, and then closely related to that, a HIPAA authorization. HIPAA stands for Health Insurance uh, Accountability Portability Act, which is our Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. I misspoke. Uh, That's basically a law that deals with medical privacy. 
Uh, there, we have an equivalent law kind of here in California, the Confidentiality and Medical Information Act, or CMIA or CMIA. I think HIPAA just sounds a lot cooler. Um, but what that what those laws basically say is that the medical providers cannot share information about your medical condition or treatment or anything like that with anyone without your express written consent. Now, of course, medical providers do that all the time. They'll come out and they'll tell the family, well, he came out of surgery and everything looks good. Um, person in surgery probably didn't sign authority for the doctor to talk to the family, but most people aren't going to be bothered by that. They might be bothered if they were hiding something from the family and the doctor comes out and kind of says, you know, well, Mrs. Jones, I'm sorry, but your husband's cancer's come back. And Mrs. Jones goes, what are you talking about? My husband doesn't have cancer. The doctor's not going to be very happy at that point because the doctor realizes that he or she has just violated the medical privacy of the patient by disclosing that fact. And the doctor in the hospital will likely get fined and may end up being sued by the patient for disclosing that. HIPAA, by the way, is the reason why uh, whenever a celebrity checks into some kind of rehab facility in Southern California, you know what I'm talking about, whoever it is, um, you know, well, oh, you know, Brittany checks into rehab, you know, it, it, or Lindsay back in rehab, you know, and then, of course, there their people always say uh, they checked in for exhaustion, right? Well, exhaustion in PR terms, usually means down the throat, in the arm, or up the nose. That's usually what it means. But then what happens in the persons in the facility, someone working there invariably goes to the computer, logs in, looks up why they're there, and next thing you know, E and TMZ have it all over the place. You know, Brittany checks into clinic, you know, using cocaine again. You know, you know, please pray for Brittany. And, of course, they trace it back to the person that released that information. They get fired. The facility gets fined. And probably they settle privately with the celebrity for an undisclosed amount for violating their medical privacy. So I know it's hard to believe, but even celebrities have a right to medical privacy. Um, a lot of people don't believe that's true, but it actually is. We have a law for that. Now, when you set up a trust like this, a living trust, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Um, the main thing is by having this trust and having a power of attorney and an advanced directive, you can keep yourself out of the probate court if you become incapacitated because you can name the people in those documents who would handle things for you, handle the property in your trust, handle anything that's not owned by your trust, like getting money out of your 401k plan because you need money to pay some expenses or something. Your trustee of your trust can't do that, but an agent under a power of attorney can. The agent under the power of attorney is also the one who would be able to file your tax returns for you. Deal with government agencies like the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board, the DMV, the VA, uh, all of those agencies you might have to deal with as an individual. And, uh, and also, you have a healthcare agent under the advanced directive to deal with the medical providers if you cannot communicate with them um, for whatever reason, and they need someone to make decisions about your health care and treatment and things like that. When you have those things set up in advance, then you don't have to go to court to have the judge appoint what's called a conservator for you. 
Now, a conservator, you may have heard that name before, that word. You may, may not have heard that term before. In some states, that person's called a guardian. Most people, when they hear guardian, they think of, oh, uh, that's someone who takes care of kids who are underage, which is true. Here in California, the guardian is appointed by a judge to take care of kids who've lost their parents, either through death or disability, or lost their parents because the parents have been declared unfit uh, to be parents. Maybe they're incarcerated in a prison or jail, uh, and someone's put in charge of taking care of that child or children. Well, the same thing can happen to adults. Uh, An adult who's disabled will typically need someone to care for them, care for their property. That person's called a conservator. The legal action's called a conservatorship. The person appointed by the court is called the conservator. And the person who is conserved by the court, I know that sounds strange, is called the conservatee. I remember when I was in law school and first learned about conservatorship in uh, one of the classes I took there, The first time the professor talked about being conserved by the court, I had this mental image that flashed in my mind of someone being put in a gigantic mason jar with holes punched in the top of the lid and then set up on a shelf somewhere like preserves. So the person's conserved. And you know what? In a sense, that's kind of what happens. You're put inside a box called the conservatorship, and the conservator appointed for you is actually now making decisions about you, your health care, your finances, handling all that for you. But if you have a trust, a power of attorney, and an advanced directive in place ahead of time, you can decide who's going to do all those things for you, and you don't have to go to court to do it. I'm a big fan of not going to court to handle things that a family should be able to handle within the family. A hundred years ago, if someone was disabled, the family just took care of that person. That still happens a lot today. But if that person has assets and if they have things that need to be invested and bills to pay and everything else, someone needs to have the authority to do that for them, which is why having an estate plan in place with a trust, power of attorney, and advanced directive makes a lot more sense. Now, with living trusts, a lot of people will do a living trust and they'll just say, okay, say you're married. Uh, A lot of people have what I call the sweetheart trust, which works like this. My spouse and I have a trust together, and it says uh, when one of us dies, everything goes to the other spouse, my sweetheart. That's why I call it a sweetheart trust. And typically that trust may then say, and when my spouse dies, give everything to my kids, okay, if they're old enough. And, of course, old enough is a relative term. I have clients coming in in their 70s whose kids are in their late 40s, early 50s, and they say, our children are financially incompetent. They should not be handed anything at any time because they'll just blow it or their spouses will take it and blow it or something along those lines. So we know that like financial incompetence is no respecter of age. Uh, You don't have to be a child to be financially incompetent. You could be 90 years old and be financially incompetent. So one of the things we look at in the planning process is not only avoiding conservatorship and then avoiding probate, which is the court process that you have to go to if you have enough property, 
and you haven't done a plan ahead of time to avoid going to the court, um, to avoid probate, having a trust in place that owns your property ahead of time, an interesting thing happens when you set up a trust. Visualize, if you will, someone wearing a pair of pants. And one pocket of the pants in the front, let's say it's me. Say I'm wearing a pair of pants. Maybe you don't want to visualize me wearing a pair of pants. Okay, so Joe over there is wearing a pair of pants. And on one of the pockets, it says Joe's stuff. On the other pocket, it says Joe's living trust. So Joe sets up that living trust. He labels that pocket in the pair of pants. He reaches into the pocket that says Joe's stuff, and he pulls out his house, his bank accounts, his brokerage accounts. He pulls out um, the um, the Kruger Rands he has in the safe deposit box, the artwork he has on the wall, the jewelry that he has, his Rolex watch, whatever it happens to be. And then what he does is he hands it to his other hand and shoves it into the pocket that says Joe's Living Trust. Now, the first thing that should be apparent from that visualization is, Who's still wearing the pants in reference to that property? Joe, right? So what if Joe wants to take some of the property in Joe's living trust and buy something or give it away? Can he reach into that pocket with the hand that's next to it, pull out that property and give it to somebody or buy something and then take take whatever he bought and shove it back in that pocket? You bet he can. And what if he still has stuff in the pocket that says Joe's stuff? Maybe he has a checking account there used for day-to-day. Yeah, he can take money out of there, too. In fact, he can take it out. He can move it back and forth every day if he wants to. He can kind of do the hokey-pokey with his property. You know, he, ta- he takes his house right out. He puts his house back in. He takes his house right out, and he gets it refinanced. He does the hokey-pokey. Then he puts it back into his trust. That's what it's all about. So that's the first thing is you can avoid conservatorship while you're alive. You can avoid probate as you've died because the probate law says if you own property as a trustee, it is not subject to the probate court for determining where that property goes. In effect, you're treated as not the owner of that property when you die, even though the reality is you are the owner of that property and you control it absolutely during your lifetime because it's in one pocket of a pair of pants that you're wearing right now. So that's one takeaway from the Living Trust. And in our final segment today, I'm going to talk about some of the really cool things we can do with trust planning to protect you and your family. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. In this last segment of the show today, first of all, I'd like to encourage you to uh, email me at planyourestateradio at gmail.com. Plan Your Estate Radio, all one word, no dashes, no underscores. Plan Your Estate Radio at Gmail. And, uh, and please email me your comments, your suggestions for shows, topics you'd like to hear about. And also, if you email me, I will be happy to email back to you a copy of my California Consumer Guide to Wills, Living Trusts, and Estate Planning. 
Uh, It's a 40-page guide that talks about a lot of different planning options available with living trust planning, other types of planning um, that I do, and you can learn a whole lot in it. Nothing but uh, factual information and good information. Uh, You engineers out there will love it because it has a lot of stuff to learn about. Um, Those of you who are just interested in a specific thing, it's indexed. You can go through and read about the thing that's of particular interest to you. Now, before the break, I was talking about living trust planning. So I'd like to finish up the show today talking about some of the things that we can do with living trust planning. Uh, First of all, probably the most important thing as far as I'm concerned, if you have people that you want to pass your property on to and you're concerned about them losing their inheritance for some way, maybe they're too young, maybe they're financially immature, maybe you have a a child who has an addiction problem, something like that, Uh, drugs, alcohol, gambling, beanie babies. I mean, addictions go all over the place. They're not just ones that can physically harm you, but they can also be ones where you just spend your money on things that really have no intrinsic value. Then uh, you have uh, someone who is a special needs person. How do you pass property on to them? I'll tell you, there's only one right way. Every Every other way that people do it is wrong and can actually make it more difficult for the special needs person uh, if things are passed on incorrectly to them. Uh, If someone is uh, in a nursing home or about to go in a nursing home, there's issues we need to deal with there. How do we protect the inheritance that's passed on to, um, to a child from being lost to that child's spouse in a divorce or lost to a creditor's claim or lost if they have to file for bankruptcy? There's all sorts of ways that people lose inheritances. So to me, one of the major things you can do with living trust planning is provide that the inheritance that's being passed on, whether it's to a spouse, a partner, children, or other heirs, to provide that it be passed on in an asset-protected fashion. This is what I call castle trust planning. Now, picture, if you will, right now, just take a moment, take a few seconds, and picture in your mind a castle that you've seen or you know about, okay? I'll wait. How many of you saw the castle at Disneyland? Probably a fair number of you. Um, I know that that's not one that I see. I've seen castles around the world in uh, Germany and England, even the Imperial Palace in Kyoto, Japan, which is remarkable. If you could ever visit that, it's well worth the visit. But castles have features. First of all, castles typically have high walls. They have thick walls. Sometimes they have a moat or a ditch filled with all sorts of stakes and things to keep people from just rushing in and going up against the walls and climbing over. They'll often have a drawbridge that can be pulled up into the castle so that you can't just walk across the drawbridge and walk in. And the other thing is they typically have several heavily armed defenders ready to throw spears, arrows, catapult, flaming, flaming heaps of things at you, big boulders and all that to keep you from breaking in. Castle trust planning takes the concept that it's not as useful to own an inheritance as it is to have the use and benefit of the inheritance. So instead of having an inheritance handed directly to your child, 
We put it inside a specially crafted trust after you've died, which is an irrevocable trust that has limits put on how the inheritance is used to take care of that child. The limits are typically what we call HEMS, health, education, maintenance, and support. Those four categories of needs that someone have are ones that are specifically put out by the Internal Revenue Service. They're considered what we call ascertainable needs because you can put a dollar amount on anything that someone might need in one of those categories. Health would be like health insurance premiums, a medical procedure that is maybe done in another country that the U.S. hasn't authorized yet. Education, tuition, books, living expenses at school. Maybe even travel is educational. Maintenance and support, things like food, clothing, shelter, recreation, vacation. You say vacation is a need? Are you kidding me? Um, How many of you right now, you know, quick show of hands, I'll count. How many would like a vacation right now? Okay, I see all but a few of you have your hands up. My hand's up right now, too. We all need vacations. That's a normal thing here in the United States. We're not subsistence farming in Zimbabwe. So castle trust planning is actually set up to provide asset protection planning for the property we pass on to our spouse, partner, children, or other heirs, protecting it from being lost to a creditor, lost to a divorcing spouse, things like that. You can find out more about castle trust planning at my website, at lawbob, L-E-W-B-O-B dot com. Uh, You can also find out about it in my consumer guide, which I urge you, send me an email at planyourestateradio at gmail.com, and I will be happy to uh, put you on my mailing list and get you a copy of that guide right away. My mailing list will let you know when my podcasts are available as well. So until next time, this is attorney Bob Bergman signing off for Plan Your Estate Radio. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.